If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah the fifth chapter. We're going to read together the first 13 verses of Nehemiah chapter 5. And if you're with us and able, I'd invite you to stand with me in honor of the Lord's word. Then there was a great protest of the people and their wives against their fellow Jews. Some said, with our sons and daughters, we are many and we all need grain to eat and stay alive. Others said, we have to mortgage our fields, our vineyards, and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. Still others said, we have had to borrow money against our fields and vineyards in order to pay the king's tax. We are of the same flesh and blood as our kin, and our children are the same as theirs. Yet we are, we are just about to force our sons and daughters into slavery, and some of our daughters are already slaves. There is nothing we can do since our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I was very angry when I heard their protest and these complaints. After thinking it over, I brought charges against the, of the officials and the officers. I told them, you are all taking interest from your own people. I also called for a large assembly in order to deal with them. To the best of our ability, I said to them, we have bought back our Jewish kin who had been sold to other nations, but now you are selling your own kin who must then be bought back by us. At this, they were silent, unable to offer a response. So I continued, what you are doing isn't good. Why don't you walk in the fear of our God? This will prevent the taunts of the nations that are our enemies. I myself, along with my family and my servants, am lending them money and grain, but let's stop charging this interest. Give it back to them right now. Return their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and give back the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you are charging them. They replied, we'll return everything, and we won't charge anything else. We'll do what you have asked. So I called the priests and made them swear to do what they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my robe, saying, so may God shake out everyone from their house and property if they don't keep this promise. So may they be shaken out and emptied. The whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As Pastor Diane said earlier, the gospel text for today on the first Sunday of Lent is always the temptation narratives. This year from Matthew, next year from Mark, the year after from Luke. Part of the reason for that is we have entered into this Lenten season, which is traditionally 40 days. And so those tempta that temptation narrative is always Jesus entering into the wilderness for 40 days. But in many ways, we do that also because the story of the Gospels is how Jesus, and the kind of theological term that's given to it is Jesus recapitulates, which means relives, re-embodies the story of Israel. And, and probably of all the Gospels, nowhere is that more true than the Matthew text that we read today. Um, the story of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus actually starts in Egypt in Matthew, and they are called out of that. And there are so many aspects of the story that have echoes of the Old Testament until finally Jesus passes through the water like Israel passed through the water and then ends up in the wilderness like Israel was in the wilderness. There in the wilderness, Jesus faces temptations. Satan comes to him having just heard a voice from heaven upon Christ saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The tempter comes along and says, so you're the son of God. How about this? 
as you define your kingdom, as you build this kingdom, why don't we do this? How about if you turn all these stones into bread? That in part is because Jesus has been fasting and he's hungry, but, but it's also likely that the tempter is saying, listen, Lord, as you define this kingdom, why don't you do this? Why don't you define it by filling people's stomachs with bread? By the way, that's an aspect of what it means to be the gospel in the world. We'll see that in the Nehemiah text in just a moment. People are hungry and need to be fed. Jesus himself will feed the multitudes as part of his ministry. But here's the question. Will that be the way that the kingdom of God is defined? As important as it is, all my years in college ministry, the first rule of college ministry is always have free food. They'll show up. And by the way, if you have free food, people will show up. But if the kingdom simply is about fulfilling desires, and here's the problem, when the kingdom becomes focused on our desires, whatever those desires are, our desires are interminable. There is no meal by which we will eat and we'll say, there, we're done. We'll be hungry again. And if the kingdom becomes about fulfilling those desires, then it will constantly placate itself to consumers of the gospel. And Jesus says, listen, um, no one can live by bread alone. But the centrality of the kingdom is every word that comes from the mouth of God. So let's go to the temple. Here's the deal. Jesus, throw yourself off. Throw yourself off. And he has promised he will command his angels concerning you. The multitudes gathered in the square of the temple will see that. Oh, they will be so impressed. If you want to get a crowd together, do signs and wonders, Lord. People will show up. And by the way, they are important to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus goes out to heal people's bodies. To take care of their needs. There is an aspect to the kingdom that is about that. But if the kingdom becomes about signs and wonders, then people will always show up only if the show continues. And by the way, you can define the kingdom that way. Flip through the channels. Go through those that go from kind of the main channels down to ESPN. Just flip through them. And you'll find a couple today that will have vast arenas filled with people who have shown up because signs and wonders are taking place. They will always draw a crowd. But here's the deal. You can't define the kingdom that way. Because as Jesus says, this will not be defined by constantly putting the Lord our God to the test. So Satan tries one more time. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all this authority. The channels of powers, the principalities of powers, they're all mine. If you learn how to manage them well... Use violence and threat. If you will do that, you will have control and I will give it to you. By the way, we are still tempted to use forms of power and coercion and manipulation to get people to do what we want them to do. But Jesus rejects that and says, no, I will serve the Lord my God only. And so much of this season is about how Jesus refuses those temptations, but forever defines the kingdom of God as the cross. As the self-emptying love of God that invites us to be transformed and become reflections of that self-emptying love ourselves. 
The reason I, I, I want to talk about that is I want to put that together with the Nehemiah text for this morning. If you've been following along with the bookmarks, um, with our kind of journey, I meant to preach on Nehemiah 8 today. I probably should have. It's a wonderful text. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah actually originally were together. We've separated them in our English Bibles, but they took one scroll and they kind of tell one story. They tell the story of the Judeans who come back post-exile in Babylon. I've used this illustration a lot, but I think it's helpful. I do think the story of Jonah is trying to retell that story in some ways. So think of it this way. These are people who got swallowed up like Jonah got swallowed up into the fish. They got swallowed up into exile in Babylon. And like Jonah, who should have died in the fish and been absorbed into the life of that great fish. So too, the Judeans should have lost their unique existence and been absorbed into the body of Babylon. But in the same way that God delivered Jonah and got that fish to puke him back up into life, so too God brought up Cyrus the Persia, Persian and this nation of Persia to come and to allow some of the Judeans to go back to Jerusalem. Only going back was a little bit like getting up chucked back into life. Because when they got there, there was really nothing left. And so Ezra and Nehemiah is about how if Jerusalem's going to have a future, four things need to happen. First, we have got to rebuild the temple and have a central place for worship. So Ezra takes that on. And we need to be a people who are shaped by God's purposes. So Ezra shapes them according to the law. But that's not quite enough because there's no kind of security or hope. And so people don't want to move into the city. They come to worship. They come to hear the law, but they don't want to stay. And so Nehemiah shows up and says, we need to rebuild these walls. And so Nehemiah takes on the rebuilding of the walls. And once that project is over, he, ha he looks around and says, but now somebody has to have build a house here. And so he gets all the people to come, or at least a tenth of the people to come and move back into the city. So there's a future and a hope for Jerusalem. And so the books are about that. And I wanted to preach on chapter eight because it's about the time all four of those things happen. And they have a big celebration, heaven and earth kisses. Ezra opens the law, and as he reads it, everybody, it's like Sunday morning, everybody cries as the scripture is read. They're so moved. I mean, there's a couple of you that fall asleep, but the rest of you cry and are moved and shaped by the word. But then Ezra says, stop crying because the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a great text, heaven and earth kissing. The only problem is it's a lot like the text Ashley preached really well last week. And... As we were going through it, I got stuck in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is this moment where Nehemiah is trying to get them to rebuild the walls. But chapters 4, 5, and 6 talk about the challenges that they're facing as they try to rebuild the walls. Chapter 4 and chapter 6 are about external challenges that the people face. And they do face some external challenges. As Jerusalem begins to find its life again, people in the land begin to realize, oh, if Jerusalem gets their life back together, that's going to impede upon how we've been operating economically. That's going to impede upon some of our power. I'm not sure we're really happy that they're getting their life back together. And so in particular, the, the Samaritans and the Ammonites and groups all around them begin to cause problems. They try to get Nehemiah assassinated. They send false prophets. They even threaten the people as they are trying to finish the walls. Nehemiah, Nehemiah's response is essentially this. 
Ah, outsiders. Let's not freak out about that. But I will continue to pray and discern good prophecy from bad. I will allow God to guide my heart and my life to hear the right voices. But then here's what we're going to do. We're going to take shifts. Half of you work on the wall and the other half you keep your eyes out. And then we'll switch places. And you all work on the wall and we'll keep our eyes out into the the distance. But chapter 5 is about how the primary challenge that the people faced as they tried to complete the walls was actually not outside of God's people, but inside. As we read, the people start to complain because two things kind of come together. One is a famine comes. The rains don't come the way that they usually do, and it got hard for a season or two to to have the crops flourish like they normally would. But then, on top of that, Nehemiah has recruited all these people to work on the walls, and they're not able to put attention to their farms and to their agrarian life like they are used to. And because of that, the economy has dipped a bit, the stock market has gone down, interest rates have gone up. Is there an amen there? Like, (laughs) and... Some of the people are really suffering because of it. While others don't want to miss out on a good crisis, see this opportunity to have their interest rates match the standard interest rates. And they're beginning to make more money. But the problem is those who've borrowed money aren't producing like they normally would because they're working on the wall and because there's a famine in the land. And so now they are going broke and they are losing their land, but they still have to pay taxes because April the 15th is right around the corner. And the Persian king is going to get his taxes one way or another. And so they have to borrow, but the only leverage they have is their children And so they use their children as collateral, and some of them are already being taken into slavery. And so a huge crisis is happening for the poor. And they've had it. And they say to Nehemiah, this is terrible. And Nehemiah says, this is terrible. And it makes Nehemiah mad, not just because it's unjust, but here's the deal. If we build a temple, and if we read the law and cry... And if we rebuild the walls, and if we even get people to move back into the city, but we operate just like all the other nations, what have we done? Nothing. And so Nehemiah says, listen, this isn't just about building a new city or an old city new. This is about recovering God's purposes in the world, and we aren't doing it. We used to do that. Nehemiah says, listen, do you remember when Babylon had taken us as captives We got our resources together and we went to every corner where we knew some of God's people were still enslaved and we bought them back. That was so good. That was so like God when we did that. But now we're putting them right back into slavery. That's not good. And on top of all of that, what I loved about the text is this, that Nehemiah says, it's you all. And he gets the leaders up front and says, it's them. But then he also says this, and it's me. Because I'm part of the wealthy leadership of this community. In fact, I'm governor. And I've been loaning. But we can't do this in a way that's oppressive. 
And so I'm going to borrow, I'm going to let people borrow, but I'm stop, I'm not going to charge interest. I'm going to make sure that they flourish and thrive. And the leaders say, oh, that's right. That's who we're called to be. We'll do that too. And all of a sudden, the project is not just about rebuilding the walls. It's about becoming God's people. And the most amazing thing happens. In just 52 days, the walls are completed. Chapter 8, that I should have preached on today, heaven and earth kiss. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And there is a hope and there is a future for Jerusalem. You with me? Here's why I think I got stuck at chapter 5. And, and, and this is a little bit personal this morning, if that's okay. As I thought about the temptation text, I, I don't doubt that is still a temptation for us to define our life together as God's people by filling people's stomachs. That is an important part of the mission of God. Please hear me. But people don't live by bread alone. And if the church of Christ in the world just becomes one more compassionate, nonprofit group of people in the world, we will have failed at our mission. No doubt there is temptation for signs and wonders <laughs> and a temptation to kind of constantly put God to the test and to not only try to keep feeding everybody's appetites, but in this day and age, feed everybody's sense of a need to be entertained, to be in on whatever's happening in the world. And I don't doubt that there is a temptation for us to just try to kind of manage ourselves into some form of success with Jesus' name put on it. But I feel like there's another temptation that really faces us. It's always faced God's people. It's the temptation to define ourselves by fear. Nehemiah could have done that. He could have defined their life together by chapters 4 and 6 by the threats from the outside. And please hear me, there were threats from the outside, but Nehemiah just kind of said, well, here's what we're going to do about that. We're going to discern and we're going to keep watch, but that is not going to be our obsession. We're not going to be defined by that. In fact, as many scholars have pointed out, the dominant command in the scripture is do not be afraid. It shows up, somebody counted 365 times, so there's at least one for every day. Do not be afraid. Do not fear. And I think in our day and age, there is an opportunity for the tempter to whisper in our ear and to say, here's how you ought to define your life together by all of those things that make you fear and make you afraid and play at those senses in chapter five that play on those senses of all of the places where you have been misused and to carry that in ways that continue to create deeper and deeper anger and division. Now, here's why I think this is a problem. Um, it has always been challenging to know what voices should we listen to. 
But in our own day and age, our sources of information have radically changed. We've talked about this before. Um, I love the scholar Neil Postman who wrote a wonderful book called Amusing Ourselves to Death that became quite famous. But he wrote another little book that I read that I I think about almost every night when I watch the evening news. It's a book called uh, How to Watch the Network News. And in it, Postman says, you know, when, when when television first came into our lives, first of all, when television came in, we didn't have a culture plus television. We just had a whole new culture shaped by television. So when television first came in, the, the three big networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, they gave away the news hour. They didn't sell advertisements. It was just an hour, and, and no question, there's no way to, uh, to always be value neutral or to be value neutral, even just picking what stories to share. You've made some decisions there. But there was an attempt to say, we're going to tell people not what they want to hear, but what we think they need to hear, Right? But then it didn't take them very long to realize, oh my word, like this is the most watched hour of the day for us on the network. Why are we giving it away? We should sell reverse mortgages. We should sell medication to old people. Now granted, that medication may make their eyes bleed, but you know, or make various things go bad, but, but we should use this time to sell products. And when that happened, Then they started to pay attention to who's watching NBC versus who's watching CBS, etc. And so a couple of things changed. The anchors got prettier. Because now it wasn't so much about how we get our information, but who attracts us as we are given that information. But increasingly it became, the question was not just what do we need to hear, but what do these people who tune into us want to hear? And in particular, what, we, what they found that really attracts us and keeps us watching is if they can just scare us a lot. So this is the part that I get tickled at. Every time there's a commercial break, almost every time, they'll say, we're going away for a commercial, but don't go away because when we come back, we're going to talk about how your dog is killing you, right? Or, you know, it's always some kind of threat. And I don't want to turn away because I want to know how my dog might be killing me. Or we're going to show footage of this train wreck. We're going to show something that gets us stirred up. Now add to that, and I got to hurry, add to that then the 24 news networks where now we've got to constantly be kept in, plugged into that information. And it didn't take very long again to figure out the best way to do that is to keep us fired up, to keep us angry. That's the best way to keep us plugged in. And then in the advent of social media and algorithms, it didn't take long for those social media companies that need us to stay online to realize the best way to do that is not just to show us cute dog and cat pictures, but it is to constantly keep us upset about something in the world that if we miss out on, we won't know why we're supposed to be mad today. Right? And by the way, we've discovered recently that is so ingrained in who they are. Sometimes they don't, sometimes the things they tell us, they know they don't even believe. But they're telling it to us so that because they know we want to believe it and we'll go somewhere else to hear it if they don't tell it to us. And I found even in my own social media life that I'm not just angry about being angry. I'm angry about those who are angry about being angry. Now, why is that important? Because I do think one of the great temptations in our age is then to define our life together 
if all week long we're constantly getting angry, then the role of the church is to play into that same sense of injustice and anger. Now, I I feel that very personally. I don't know that it's a temptation for me. I'll talk about my temptation in a minute, but, but I feel that it has so marked the church, not just in terms of who are we getting angry about outside of here, but it's even turned into how are we angry about people who are also called by Christ's name, who somehow are suspicious to me too. And my sense of emptiness is I feel like it's become such a good strategy for church growth that I'm missing out on it and I'm losing people to places that are feeding into those fears because they're so deeply disappointed that we aren't doing the same. And just like pursuing another source of information that will keep that rage fueled, I need to find a place that will keep that rage fueled even in my places of worship. Are you with me? Now, my temptation is to fuel the rage on the other side, the rage of the rage. And easily begin to define our life by being those people whose core sense of identity is that we are angry about those people in the world who are angry. If I didn't lose you there, we take that parable in Luke where the tax collector stands there, or the Pharisee stands there and says, thank God I'm not that tax collector. We take that parable and say, thank God I'm not that Pharisee. And in the process, become a kind of Pharisee. What does that have to do with Nehemiah chapter 5? What got me stuck in Nehemiah chapter 5 this week was Nehemiah's ability to say, there will always be threats outside, but that's not going to be the focus of our life. The biggest challenge to us rebuilding the walls is the hurt and misuse that so many of God's people bear and the hurt and misuse that so many of us who bear God's name continue to participate in. And I say that because what I love about this Lenten season is this Lenten season is about gathering together. Even the call to worship this morning from Psalm 32 was an invitation to come and say, Those who confess their sins before God find grace and forgiveness. To pray Psalm 51, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. What draws us together as a community, especially during this season, is to let go of our fears and even to meet Christ in the place of suffering So that those who have been hurt and misused find that God knows their name, hears their cries, and wants to help them journey along the path of letting that go so that anger and that hurt don't ultimately define their destiny too. And they end up back in a slavery they've been redeemed from. But we also meet the God 
who sees and knows our guilt and allows us to confess that before God and before each other and to find a grace then that becomes the thing that shapes our life together. In a few weeks um, on Holy Week, we'll We'll have our tenebrae service on Good Friday. If, if you've not done that with us, it's a pretty simple service. We have just a series of candles, either seven or 40. Depends on how many Ryan finds that year. Uh, we tell the story, we kind of light the candles as we tell the story. This Christ light is the center of it. Then we tell the story of either the seven last words or the rejection of Christ. And those candles begin to go out as our sin is made more known until only the Christ-like remains. And then we place a globe over that and eventually that, like the crucified Lord, the Christ-like goes out. I was trying to think, I think this is either year 24 or 25 for me to do, uh, to lead that kind of service. Every year I think we should do something different. I mean, come on, it's not that complex, just candles and darkness. But I keep being drawn back to it, not just because I lack creativity, but, but one of the first years, it was actually my first year pastoring in Dallas, and it was the first year for that church to do a tenebrae service, I'm pretty sure. Everybody was kind of nervous about it because they weren't sure what to expect, you know, there's an awkward moment. If you've, if you've ever gone, you know, there's an awkward moment where the last candle goes out, it's dark, and then you have that feeling like, how long am I supposed to stay here? Can I leave now? How? And we were kind of in that moment, right? The last, the candle had gone out. It was dark in that room. And people were sitting there in the awkwardness of when are we supposed to go when all of a sudden right over here in this section of that church, I heard a scream that I'll just never forget. It was just a wail. Somebody wailed out and started sobbing. And I, I could not see who it was, but I could continue to hear the cries. And eventually people began to leave and the crying continued. And finally, at the appropriate time, I thought, I need to go over and pray with that person. And as I made my way over, I, I found who it was. It was a young young adult male in, a, in the church who between you and me was kind of a problem, pretty angry, struggling at home, angry at the church, frustrated at work, filled with all sorts of kind of brokenness and just anger. And something about being present to God in the darkness of life broke something open for him. And not only the pain of his life began to spill forth, but the ways that he had created hurt and others began to spill forth. And I got over to him and kind of picked him up and he leaned on my shoulder and for about 30 minutes cried and we talked together and he shared what experiencing the moment of God's presence had done for him that night as he began to spill forth all that his life had been carrying. And it was in that moment that I thought, we are doing Tenebrae every year. And we are gathering beneath the shadow of the cross every year because what shapes us is not that we can fill stomachs. What shapes us is not signs and wonders. What shapes us is not our ability to manage our circumstances. And what shapes us is not our fear of the other. 
What shapes us is the grace of Christ that meets us in our pain and our shame and the grace of Christ that meets us in our sin and refuses to let our pain and shame nor our sin and rebellion have the last word. So that a people might rebuild a temple and cry every time the word is read and have the walls rebuilt and move into a city. But the heart of the city is the light that shines because of the grace that radiates from the people dwelling there. Who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. God, I pray that you would help us today. We live in a time that plays upon our natural sense of fears. A world that places us in kind of echo chambers of information that largely keep us stirred up in ways that then constantly demonize the other whom you love, but also keep us from being attentive to the hurt and the sin within. And so have mercy on us today. Shape us not by our fears, but by your grace. May we reject the temptation to define our lives the way the world so often and the tempter so often wants to define our existence. Make us a people of your grace and mercy today. For we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're gonna sing together um, during this season, and it's always the case, but during this season, these altars are open for you. If you need to respond to that grace this morning, I invite you to do that as we close together. Let's sing together. Lord, I, I called you, oh, I need you.
where sin runs deep, your grace is more. And where grace is found, that is where you are. And where you are, Lord, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. May the God of peace himself, may he keep us from all temptation and sanctify us through and through. And may our whole spirit, our souls, our bodies, may they be kept sound and blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he who called us, he keeps rebuilding the city for he is faithful and he will complete that work in us. And God's people said, amen, amen. Go in his peace.